Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to welcome you as we open our Bibles and listen to part two of God's amazing plan to redeem you. I'm so thankful to Ken Craig that he came to the Franklin Church and presented this series of lessons to us, and I hope that you will find it beneficial in your own walk with the Lord. So open your Bibles and listen to part two of God's amazing plan to redeem you. Good morning. Uh... Good to see everyone here this morning again. Thank you for your presence. Bring you greetings from the Helena Church in Birmingham, uh, where I'm one of the elders there, and uh, appreciate so much you're having me here today. Uh, I know the elders here are probably frustrated with Edwin. They keep asking him to get a big name preacher to come, and he keeps getting a big speaker. Uh, but uh, I will do what I can to try to be worthy of having you here today and your time and your attention. I'm glad to see some of my old friends here, Kathy McGee and her family, and Paul and Steve Helsley have driven down from Bowling Green. And uh, thank you all for your presence and the confidence in me. It's a simple story I tell, and it's one I tell when I share the gospel with people. And we have a lawyer that worships with us, and he made the remark the other day to some people. He said, you know, Ken's a good teacher, but he's not near good enough to get the kind of results he's been getting. And that's the power of the gospel. And that's what we want to talk about today. We want to continue from our lesson this morning. And I hope that what this will do today is help you all, help us all to gain a greater appreciation for what Christ did for us. This amazing gift that he gave us. God's amazing plan to redeem you. We're going to review just a little bit from what we covered this morning, which is really the foundational lesson for this lesson that I'm, we're about to, to talk about. But we started with Christ about to leave the earth, and he gave his apostles the Great Commission, where he told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I would just ask you this morning, are you doing that? Are you preaching the gospel to people that you know? Are you sharing that story with them? You know, if you're not, you know, it really won't matter how often you come to church or what we do in work or worship if we just neglect that fundamental command of Christ, that important command. And we learn in Romans 1.16 why that's so important. Because he he says, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. The gospel, this message, is God's power to save. It's not lightning bolts or some fuzzy religious experience. It's a message that Christ said, go and preach this message, and it will tell people in that message. It stands between them and salvation. It will tell them what to do to be saved. And I contend, if you go out here on the streets today and you line up ten people, and you ask them, well, what is it that God expects me? What does God want me to do? to be saved. I guarantee you get ten different answers. And those are different Gospels. And that's the problem that we encounter in Galatians 1 where Paul says, I'm amazed, he writes this to Galatian Christians, that you're following a different Gospel. That even if we, if we an apostle or an angel from heaven were to preach a different Gospel, let them be condemned. You think, well, this isn't happening today. It is happening. I mean, less than a hundred, over just a, a, a relatively short time, a 15-year-old boy claimed that he saw an angel and he was given some golden tablets. And that's the whole basis of the Mormon religion, was a 15-year-old boy claiming to meet an angel. Paul says, even if an angel tells you a different gospel, they'll be condemned. We have to get that right. So we go on a discovery mission today to be sure that we understand what this one gospel is, what this one great plan of redemption is. And we call it a forest for the trees approach. We're going to step back and look at the Bible from a 20,000 foot view and try to understand that all of these different doctrines and big words that we tend to study are really all in the context of this great plan of redemption. And Galatians 3.24 tells us that the place to begin to understand the gospel is back in the Old Testament, that the old law was a teacher to bring us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So there's things that we need to learn from the old law, from the Old Testament, 
that will help to bring us to Christ. We looked at, a, at, at God's holiness. We talked about the holiness of God and how that that's demonstrated to us by God's justice and by His love. That God's holiness drives everything in His relationship to man. That God's holiness, in fact, is what God wants, is the reason that God wants us to be holy, so that He can have a relationship with us. If we have sin in our lives, then we cannot have a relationship with God. Because sin separates us from God. It's an automatic repulsion from God. If we have sin in our lives, God has to turn His face away. And it separates us from God, and it's an automatic condition. And God said there's a price for this. This condition is called spiritual death. To be separated from God is so bad, it's, to, it's called spiritual death. And what we see in the Old Testament, through those, that period of the Old Testament, we see that God killed people. He destroyed the entire world in the, in the Genesis flood because of their sins, except for Noah and his family. And Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And we see that this price of death is on the head of everyone that sins. Ezekiel says the person that sins will die, repent, and live. So what that means to us personally is that because of our sin, we deserve death. God has decreed that as a penalty or price for death. So we see that God's justice has demanded death as a payment for sin. And it's a price that man can't pay. We're separated from God, and that would leave us in a desperate situation, except for one thing. The other side of that equation is God's love, which looks to provide grace and mercy, where God gives us what we don't deserve, and mercy, where He doesn't give us what is deserved. We deserve death. God gives us life through His love and His mercy. And we see that in the Old Testament, God demonstrated that to us through the concept of blood. Blood is what God used to show His justice and His mercy. And that the Bible is a book that drips blood. And this is why God uses blood to provide atonement. We were told in, in Leviticus that, that the uh, life of the flesh is in the blood. He gave it to us on the altar to make atonement for our souls. For it is the life by reason of the blood that makes atonement. And so we see that this is the purpose of animal sacrifice. God gave animal sacrifice to take that innocent animal and let the life of that animal be killed in, our, in, the, in the behalf of the sinner. So we see that blood represents life. The innocent life, in this case the animal, atones for the sinner. And in that sense, the innocent life represents the guilty life. And this was the whole point because of Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood... There can be no remission of sins. A fundamental foundational principle. Blood atonement. That's the only thing that will take care of sin. Not good works. We can do good works forever. You know, and that will not cover one single sin. It will not remove a single sin. So that we see that through animal sacrifice, it's as if the sins of the sinner go over to this animal. And then this animal is killed. And that that death of that animal is applied essentially to the sinner, representatively, so that the sinner, it's as if the sinner's died. And in that sense, God's justice is served in that a death has taken place. God's mercy is served in that the truly guilty, you and me, don't have to literally give our lives. And this is a great concept of the scheme of redemption, or the plan of redemption. This is the foundational premise and promise of God's great Plan. So look at all the things that we learn about through animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. We learn about sacrifice and death and atonement and blood and life and how bad sin is. And we learn about grace and we learn about mercy. And for thousands of years, this system went in place. It was in place and it went on and millions of animals were killed. Why? To teach us the things that we need to know to be brought to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And then there's that climactic moment in history where John is baptizing in the River Jordan. He looks up and he sees Christ coming and he announces him to the Jews, Behold, the Lamb of God 
that takes away the sin of the world. There you have right there in that one statement the entire plan of redemption. And I hope you can all see that. This is, this is why Christ came. Christ came to be God's lamb, to be God's sacrifice. This statement tells us immediately Christ didn't come to earth and die accidentally, that, that man was not able to thwart the plans of God. Christ came and His purpose was to die. His purpose was to be God's sacrifice. And it tells us, too, why Christ came and why He lived a perfect life, an innocent, sinless life. If Christ had had one sin on His head, He couldn't have been the Lamb of God for you and me. He would have been liable for that payment Himself. So this tells us a whole lot, just in this one statement, historically looking back over the whole scope of the Old Testament and looking forward to what Christ actually did in our behalf, you and me, the truly guilty, the sinner that deserved death ourselves. If you go back 750 years before Christ came, another great evidence of the Bible, we see that Christ was prophesied in Isaiah 53. And we're not going to read the whole book of Isaiah or look at all the prophecies of Christ, but, but understand what it says. Surely our griefs He bore, our sorrows He carried. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging we are healed. Why, people ask, did Christ go through such a grisly experience in His death? Why did He have nails driven through His hands? Why was He scourged and had flesh ripped from His bones? Because sin is bad. And this is the price that He paid when it should have been you and me. It was the price that He went through for us. And this is what was told about Him in prophecy. 750 years. All of us like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on Him. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Who was the stroke due? Who was this, this heinous, these heinous acts due? To us. It was due to us. He took it. He paid the price. He will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Yet He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He took our sins and He paid that price. So as we look further at this, we see, behold, the Lamb of God. We can't begin to touch on every passage in the New Testament, but I want, to, want, want us all to understand very clearly. First Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the Lamb of Christ. Notice he says, redeemed. We just sang that song. I'm redeemed. What does that mean? You know, I, I tell the story that when I was a little boy, mother used to go to the grocery store and they would, she'd buy the grocery and they'd give her these things called S&H Green Stamps. I don't know if they had them up here or not. And you'd collect them in little books and you had a little catalog you could go through and we'd spend hours figuring out what we were going to buy with those S&H Green Stamps. And when you got ready to buy something with them, you took them, do you remember? This is going to date you. You took them to the S&H Redemption Center, where with those books you could purchase something else. Christ redeemed us. He didn't do it with gold or silver. He paid for us with what? Blood. Blood atonement of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. I was just reading an internet debate the other day, and they said, well, Christ didn't pay our debt. Well, what do these passages mean? You have been bought with the price. Christ paid for something. He paid for you and me. And He paid with His life. He paid with His blood. Blood atonement. Look at what he said in Matthew 20 28. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He paid 
the price for us. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. You remember that passage we, we quoted over and over in Hebrews 9.22? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Isn't this saying exactly the same thing? Christ said, this is my blood, and it's poured out for forgiveness of sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. We need to give serious thought to that, because I don't think there's a single one of us here today that has shed a drop of blood to pay this price. But that's what Christ did. First John 3, 5, But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 puts it like this. You were redeemed with precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. So what we see is that animal goes away and is replaced by Christ. Christ's sacrifice replaced and did away with animal sacrifice. And that's what we see in prophecy in Isaiah 53 where it talks about Christ being a lamb. Like a lamb that was led, led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. Again, Christ in prophecy so that people would know this was exactly the role that he played. In 1 Peter 2.24, we have a very clear explanation of exactly this process. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, let me make sure you understand that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ on the cross bore our sins in His body. Why? What did He do after He did that? When He took our sins, when He bore our sins in His body on the cross, what did He do? He died. He took our sins and then He died. Why? That we might die to sin. Do you see that? Christ took our sins and then He died the death that we deserve. So that we might die to sin. And that's isn't that exactly what we saw in Isaiah 53. That the Lord calls the iniquity of us to fall on Him. He will bear their iniquities. He Himself bore the sins of many. And who was that for? That was for us. We're the ones that are supposed to die. We're the ones that should have died. He interceded for us. And we'll look at some other passages. There's so many we could just spend all day on this. Hebrews 9. He has been manifested... To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He's paying the price. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Christ took our sins. He died. He paid the price. He sacrificed Himself for us. What kind of people are we that this doesn't touch us? That this doesn't move us. That this that we can't see really what Christ did for us. How pitiful are we to reject a gift like this and to not live our lives in a manner worthy of that? Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become what the righteousness of God in Him, Christ." It's said to be made sin so that we can become righteous. That's how that worked. And look at this. Think about this thought. Do you remember what Christ said when He was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would He say that? Why would Christ have made a statement like that? Isn't that exactly what we learned earlier from Isaiah 59 Habakkuk, that God can't even look upon sin? That God has to turn His face away from sin? If Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin before He died, this is shortly before He died, He spoke these words. I contend that what Christ was afraid of. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Christ is in the garden. He's praying over and over not to have to go through this. Sweating. Angels, he's in anguish. Angels comforting him. 
What was he afraid of? He taught his followers not to be, not to fear death. But yet, here he is fearing something. What's he afraid of? I contend that this is what he's afraid of. He taught, you know, we have examples in history of his followers being heard singing praises to God as they were marched into the Colosseum to be ripped apart by lions. We have examples of Christians singing praises, heard to be singing praises while they were being burned alive. I think what Christ was afraid of, I think what he dreaded more than anything would be to go through this ordeal to be separated from his Father for the first time in all eternity. That he dreaded that. A fate worse than death. But yet, not my will, but yours be done. He did that for you and for me. First Peter 3.18, He died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous to do what? To bring you to God. He went through that ordeal for us, to bring us to God. Colossians 1.22, But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. What? To present you holy, without blemish and free from accusation. Do you understand what this is saying? When Christ paid that price, His death is what allows us to have our sins removed. And when our sins are removed, this is where that thing called sanctification occurs. And as a result of that, we're reconciled with God, but it requires that we be made holy. And only through the removal of sin can we be made holy. And that's what Christ is saying in His death. His physical body reconciled us and it made us holy without blemish and free from accusation. Christ's death is what removes sins. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And this passage tells us so much that Christ's death reconciled us with God because it made us holy when it removed our sins. Romans 6, 8 puts it this way. Our old self was crucified with Him that our body of sin might be done away with. It portrays the death of Christ and my dying with Him as if I'm the one that died. It's as if I was the one that was hanging on that cross. Our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away. And after all that, look at this, it's by faith. Just like we learned in Old Testament animal sacrifice. All in sin, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. This is just the sort of the New Testament word for atonement. Through faith in what? In our obedience. No, through faith in His blood. It's through faith in Christ's blood that we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we look at this whole scenario and just ask the question, who died? Who died? In the justice of God, Christ died, didn't He? He literally, physically died. But who else died? The sinner died. The sinner was crucified with Him representatively through Christ. And if you understand that concept, then you see this all over. We're not going to look at every New Testament passage that deals with this, but let's look at a few of these real quickly. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we, what? Died with Him, we will also live with Him. Now I want you to pay particular attention to the prepositions here. Notice what he says. If we died with Him. It doesn't say if we died because of Him or if we died for Him or if we died in Him. Notice what it says. If we died what? With Him. The New Testament Christian is portrayed as someone that in the past in their life died 
with Christ. And that results in the death of the believer. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And notice what he says here. I have been crucified what? With Christ. Past tense. Something occurred in the past. I was crucified with Christ. Not in Christ. Not crucified in Christ. Not crucified for Christ or because of Christ. I was crucified with Christ. Resulting in the death of the believer. 2 Corinthians 5.14 puts it this way, talking about Christians in the context. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all what? Died. This is what we're talking about. Let's look at one more. Colossians 3.3 Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. There again, referring to something that occurred in the past of, of these Christians that says that there was a point where they died with Christ. Excuse me, my voice is about to give out. So I hope that what you can see from this, that this is the concept. Our sins cannot and will not be forgiven unless we have died with Christ. Unless we have been united with Christ in His death, there's no way our sins can be forgiven because there's no other mechanism. There's no other way for sin to be given. We have to have been crucified with Christ. We have to have died to sin at some point in our lives. And that's because the scheme of redemption says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So, as we look at this great plan of redemption, and let's suppose that you've just heard this for the first time. You've never understood that whole great plan of redemption that the Bible presents. And you've heard this and you're going, you're touched in your heart. You believe it. It makes sense. And now all of a sudden for the first time you realize, oh, this is what Christ did for me. This is what Christ did to redeem me. This is God's great plan of redemption that I die with Christ. What question would come to your mind? Now, don't anybody answer me. But I just want you to think for a minute. What question would come to your mind naturally if you just had this explained to you that this is how the great plan of redemption of God works, that we die with Christ? I think this is the gospel response. When? Now, if you were thinking how, I'll accept that. If you were thinking why... Deduct points. When? When does this happen? Oh, I believe it. I see it. I understand it. Exactly. What point in my faith do I die to sin? When does God count that for me? At what point do I die with Christ? When does this happen for me? When does God view me as uniting with Christ in His death? When does God view me it's being crucified with Christ. Isn't that a pretty important question? I contend this is the response. This is the question of the gospel. This is the question of the response to the gospel. How does this work for me? How does the plan of redemption work for me? Well, can you imagine that God sent Christ after thousands of years of learning in the Old Testament. And he just leaves this kind of a great fuzzy mystery that if you just talk to people today, you'll get all kinds of answers. Well, it's when you pray the sinner's prayer. Or it's when you just believe. We know that's not the case, because James clearly showed that. That God would just leave this some great mystery that you just get a lot of different answers. Those different answers are different Gospels. 
We want a Bible answer. And fortunately, God didn't leave this a mystery. He made it very, very clear. It's a passage that's often overlooked, never studied, and hardly ever applied. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. And he begins the reading there by saying, What shall we say then? Are we we to continue in sin that grace may increase? These Romans had this idea that because grace is so good at removing sin, the more you sin, the more grace applies. He said, "Uh uh-uh. No, that's not it. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And isn't that one of our questions? Well, when is it that we die to sin? Well, Paul doesn't stop there. I should say the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there, because in verse 3, he tells us, or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into what? His death. This is what the point of baptism is all about. God tells us this is the point whereby your faith, you enter Jesus Christ. This is where you enter His death. Now the point is this. Why do I need to enter Christ's death? Well, if we understand the plan of redemption, we understand that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And this is where I die with Christ. I am baptized into Christ. I'm baptized into His death. And I can tell you, there's not another, any other way to remove sin than the blood and death of Christ. And this is where God tells us He unites us with Christ in His death. Now, He, he didn't just... He could have just stopped there, and that right there would have been enough to tell us the whole connection with the scheme of plan of redemption and how we accept Christ's great gift by faith. Baptized into Christ. Baptized into His death. But look at verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism. Understand that. Look at, look at these verses very carefully. Buried with Him through baptism, into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. What happened when Christ died and was buried? He was resurrected, wasn't He? He got a new life. He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in this of life. When we are baptized into Christ, when we are baptized into His death, you know what happens? Our sins are removed. We get a new life. That's what He's telling us. It's like a video game where you really messed up bad and you, you get a new life. Maybe that's not a good illustration. But you understand the point he's saying. This is what it's talking about to be born again. We get a new life. You get to start over. You get your sins completely removed and you get to start over. Look, let's keep reading. Verse 5. For if we have become united with Him, pay close attention to these prepositions, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is one of our questions. When? Do I become united with Christ in His death? And Romans 6 tells us that it's when we are baptized into Christ, when we are baptized into His death, that we are united with Him in the likeness of His death. Then we get a new life. Verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with. How much plainer could this be? How much clearer could this be? Knowing this, our old self was crucified with Him. And what resulted of that? Our body of sin would be done away with. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That was one of our questions, wasn't it? 
when does God view me as being crucified with Christ? It's when by faith in His blood that I'm baptized into Christ, that I'm baptized into His death, and I'm crucified with Him. And as a result of that, my sins are removed. Our body of sin is done away with. Verse 7, For he who has died is freed from sin. When are my sins removed? When I'm baptized into Christ. When I'm baptized into His death. Verse 8, Now if we, what? If we have what? Died with Christ. We believe we shall also live with Him. Again, that was one of our questions. When does God view me as dying with Christ? Because I must die with Him. It's when we're baptized into Christ, when we're baptized into His death, that we're said to have died with Christ. Look at verse 10. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. What's this talking about? What kind of death did Christ die? He died a physical, literal death on the cross. And that says He died to sin. But look at verse 11. In the same way, in the same way, count yourselves, it might help if I bring it up, in the same way, count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Just as Christ died literally, physically on that cross to death, He says, in the same way, you can now count yourselves as dead to sin. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't this just so clear? Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Now here's his point. He's putting them in all this remembrance. Look at that verse. Therefore. What he's saying is, now, this is the reason you should stop sinning. Remember what Christ did for you? Don't you remember? You died with Him. When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death. You're united with Him in His death. you got a new life. You're crucified with Him so that your body of sin might be done away with. Stop sinning! You, you were dragged up out of that mud puddle and you were cleaned up and washed off. Don't go get back in it. This is not an excuse to continue sinning. This is the whole context of the argument that Paul's making in, in reminding them of why they were baptized into Christ and why they were baptized into His death well, so the thing would have a different attitude towards sin. Sin should not have the appeal that it once had to us once we have died with Christ, once we have gotten that new life, and once our sins have been removed. Let's just skip on down. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became what? Obedient. Remember our definition? What is that? Obedient? But how? Obedient in what manner? From the heart, there's the belief, and there's the action. Obedient. From the heart. Isn't that what we decide, discovered all along? That's the meaning of faith. Belief-based action. Obedient from the heart. It was by faith that baptism had any value or any uh, application to the life of a sinner. It was when they became obedient. From the heart. Look at verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in what? Sanctification. Freed from sin, sins removed, you're now what? Sanctified. This is where we're made holy, without blemish, reconciled to God. Once that penalty, once, that, once our sins have been removed, we're now holy. And we're sanctified in our relationship with God. A holy God can now be restored. This is what Christ did for us when He went to the cross in our behalf. And finally, verse 23 gives us this great thing. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He says, when you were baptized into Christ, when you were baptized into His death, you earned your salvation, didn't you? No, that's not what he says. After all this, he says, this is a gift. This is a gift. You just ex- When you were baptized into Christ, 
When you were baptized into his death, you know what you just did? You accepted the gift from God. You didn't even become close to earning it through that obedience of faith. It is a gift. And I'll tell you what, it's a marvelous gift. Those of us that have that gift, I tell you, aren't afraid to die. Which will come. Ready to go. Take me now. Come, Lord Jesus. Because of this great gift that God has given us. Well, let's just look back. Just, just glance quickly at, the, at this language of Romans 6. We died. Look at all the death and, 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 and stuff connected with this. We died to sin, baptized into His death, buried into death, newness of life, united with Him in death, crucified with Him. Oh, died with Christ, died to sin. You know, all this. Slaves to righteousness, freed from sin, free gift of God. This is all the plan of redemption. This is all Old Testament language. This is all blood atonement language. This is all representative death language that occurs to us when we're baptized into Christ's death. I like the way John, 1 John 3.14 puts it. Talking to Christians, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Can you see this great gift? Can you understand now? Now, somebody may say, well, Ken, you're just putting too much emphasis on baptism. And it may be that I am because this is so neglected and ignored by most of the religious world today. But I'll tell you, I think it's an emphasis that the New Testament places as well. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's a list given here of seven things. Seven things that Christians have to be in agreement on. Now, we can disagree about a lot of things. And I know here at Franklin, there's probably nothing that anybody disagrees with anyone about. But we can disagree about a lot of things. But there's seven things listed here that says... Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of priest. These are seven things that the Holy Spirit tells us. You better be united on these. You can't not be united on these seven things. And let's, let's look at this list. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One baptism? Now here's my question. How did baptism get on this list? Think about that. Look at this list. One Spirit. One hope. One Lord. One faith. One God and Father. One baptism? Isn't that kind of out of place? I mean, if baptism is just some fuzzy, symbolic thing that you can do or not do, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't play any role at all in your salvation, what in the world is it doing on this list? I mean, we took the Lord's Supper this morning. How important is that? That's very important. That's critically important, but you know, I don't see it on this list. But baptism somehow made this list. Well, I think the answer should be very clear, actually. If we understand that baptism is where we, a, a believer is put into Christ. That baptism is where a believer is put into Christ's death. That baptism is where we're united with Christ in His death. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That baptism is on this list because this is where our sins are removed. And not only that, how many baptisms are there? There's just one. Just like that one gospel of Galatians 1, there's only one baptism. Are there more than one baptism floating around today? Well, there's just all kinds of people telling you that you need to do this baptism or that kind of baptism. How could we find out? 
how could we know for certain that we have followed the one baptism of the one gospel? Well, this is where we could go to the book of Acts. Did you know what the book of Acts contains? The book of Acts is not written so much to explain the scheme of redemption or the plan of redemption, although you can find a lot of the elements in there discussed and, and described. But the book of Acts is a history book. It's explaining how the apostles carried out the great commission of Christ. And we see all kinds of examples. Wouldn't an example just serve to clear up a lot of theology? So if we go to the book of Acts, and we're not going to do that this morning, so don't panic. We're just going to look. But in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 8, we see some very clear examples. In Acts chapter 2, we see believers. And they ask Peter, what must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. He didn't explain the whole scheme. There it was, right there. So we can just look at several different examples, and we can see that baptism was commanded. It wasn't a promise. So if somebody says, well, you've got to be baptized with the Holy Spirit because that was promised, well, that's not what we see in Acts. We see that people were commanded by the apostles to be baptized. So that's one element of the one baptism. It was for believers. What was infant baptism? The people on the day of Pentecost asked, what must we do? They were believers. They were told to repent and be baptized. What about the fact that it was told that baptism is for remission of sins? Well, somebody says, well, you need to be baptized to join a church or to show your commitment. Well, that's a different baptism, isn't it? This, the baptism, the one baptism of Ephesians 4 was for remission of sins. And it followed repentance and confession. Because Christ said you had to repent. And you had to be able to confess His name before men. And that's why we see when believers ask that question, they were told to repent and be baptized. It was immersion in water. When, they, when Philip baptized the Ethiopian unit, they stopped the chariot, and they both went down into the water. And he baptized them. It wasn't sprinkling. It wasn't pouring. It wasn't some other mode. In fact, the Greek word baptizo means immersion. Our English translators just brought that word into English, but it, that's what it means. And finally, we learned that baptism was when one was added to the kingdom. And doesn't that make sense that it says that those that were, be, that were being baptized were added, the Lord added them to the church, those that were being saved in Acts chapter 2. Doesn't it make sense that when we have our sins removed and our relationship to God restored, that that's when God adds us to His kingdom. So what we see in Acts is what they were carrying out. We didn't complete the Great Commission this morning, but let's go back and look at it. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized, there's that faith part again, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who has not believed shall be condemned. This is what Christ said. Christ said this. You know what? I'm not going to teach anything other than this. And if somebody wants to say that I'm a member of a cult or anything, I don't care what they say. I want to be in the same cult that Christ was in, in the apostles' room, when he said there's only one gospel and there's only one baptism. And if we believe, what is it, we're supposed to, what is it we need to believe? The great gospel message that every one of us sitting here are guilty in the sight of God. And, we've got sin, and when we have sin in our life, it separates us from God. And there's only one thing that will remove that. There's probably somebody sitting here today thinking, well, I'm pretty good. I've lived a good life. I've done a lot of good work. You know what? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Good works, good intentions, good beliefs will not remove a single sin, only the blood of Christ. We sing a song sometimes, What can wash away my sins? You know what the answer is to that? Yeah. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I ask you this morning, have you died with Christ? If you haven't, then I'm sorry to inform you that you're separated from God.
your sins have separated from your God. A couple of years ago, I was out in the middle of the Indian Ocean in a group of islands called the Seychelles. I don't know if any of you know where that is. And I preach this lesson to a group, and a young man, about 21, responded. And we stood there in the sunset in the Indian Ocean, ready to baptize this young man. He looked up and he said, it's a good day to die. <laughs> and I said, you got that right. And you know what? Today's a good day to die. If you've not died with Christ, why not do that today? You know, just accept this wonderful gift. You know, and that's why when Christ returns, those of you know, can you imagine God sent His Son Christ to do all, to go through all that for us, and then we reject it? Can you imagine the wrath of God that will be reserved for those, that's what He says in Second Thessalonians, those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel. When we don't obey this Gospel message, we're rejecting Christ's sacrifice. And I can tell you something, God doesn't like that. If you haven't died with Christ, why not do that today? We're going to sing this song. What's this song? Yeah. Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Won't you come? Always stand and sing. What an amazing plan God had for us to redeem us. His mercy and His grace. I hope you have been impressed as I have been impressed and awed by God and His love for us. If you have any questions about this plan of redemption, about how you can be redeemed, if you would like to participate in God's plan of redemption, if you realize that you haven't obeyed His gospel yet and you want to do that, call us right now, 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Don't forget there's a third part to this series, four testimonies that we can find to this amazing plan of redemption. Go to our website and download it along with any number of lessons that you'd like to study in audio or outline format. Again, that's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.